to another episode of our podcast on travel dates unique travel experiences from india today we have amy with her she is from philadelphia and uh, she has just recently came out with a book on her adventures in zanskar which she did when she was only into in her 20s and she actually did a solo travel to india she lived in remote parts of himalayas interacted with monks and people living in monasteries in the remote part of this country and she learned a lot about the culture the way people live there and she carried it back to her country us where she has been doing training students about her learnings and how she gained inner strength from her travels in india so maybe i'll uh, asking me to start with how did she get motivated to do this journey and uh, how did is her interest start in india or for example buddhism or uh, the tradition or why was she attracted to visit this place after all wonderful well thank you so much for having me i i have very very warm feelings towards india and the four years that i spent in the northern states of the country and it's a beautiful land rich with insight and wisdom and understanding of the mind understanding of the body understanding of what it takes to realize our higher human potentials so i am thrilled that you're doing this podcast to help uh people who are now living in india living very busy lives uh reconnect with and remember uh the richness that is many thousands of years old and and steeped in the land of india adventure in zanskar is a book that i wrote when i spent a couple of months walking in the zanskar valley in 1983 so you have to remember that the in 1983 it was before the internet before gps before cell phones uh there was one rickety road from shrinagar to lay and buses that would go and lorries that would go back and forth and the rest was on foot so i found an old indian army map that had some dotted outlines of footpaths through the Zanskari valley and i took the bus from shrinagar to kargil in june of 1983 and i got out of the bus in kargil and began walking and walked down to padum and up to lamayuru there's now a road i believe that that connects kargil with padum but in those days they were beginning an army road but it was just a bunch of cleared rocks that didn't go very far and was washed out in most places so it was small footpaths up and down over the mountain passes i carried everything with me i traveled without a tent because it was summertime so i was able to sleep outside or in rock shelters or abandoned shepherd huts or in villages along the way it was before guest houses i don't know if they've been established along the route i imagine that they have now yeah it's 
four decades later. The adventure in Zanskar is really the story that I wrote about the magic that I experienced in the valley. I had studied Buddhism and, and lived both in Nepal and in Dharamsala, where I had the opportunity to take some teachings. So I was familiar with some basic concepts. And while I was there, I got to see what those teachings were like when they were lived. Because Zanskar has been an unbroken Buddhist valley for hundreds of years. It's so isolated that it was up until uh, westernization encroached on the culture, it really had remained unchanged. And so every family sent one or two children to a monastery or a nunnery, always one, but sometimes a son and a daughter would get to go. And the children would, would go to the monastery, learn Buddhist practices and principles, learn how to read texts, and they would come back to their families every summer and help with the harvests and spend time with their families and teach them. So the whole valley was steeped in practice and knowledge about the principles that create a harmonious life. And what I found there and what I experienced was a level of ease and equanimity and generosity that wasn't premeditated. It was just the way people were. Now, Zanskaris aren't, they're not like the yogis in Rishikesh who are very calm and peaceful and, and just meditating in, in Mona. The Zanskaris are very boisterous and fun-loving people. So you have this combination of very high energy people who like to joke and they like to sing and they like to, um, they like to tease each other good-naturedly. And at the same time, they're very, they're amazingly generous and um, kind, just in their nature, very, very uh, free of attachment. And I write about some different examples where I saw that. So I'm, I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to be there just seven years after the Valley was opened for tourism because it was closed for many years because of geopolitical reasons. It's next to Chinese-occupied Tibet. On the other side, there's Kashmir. Right above is Pakistan, and just above that is Afghanistan and Tajikistan. And so it's really geopolitically, it's a very uh, precarious area. But because geographically it's so isolated by these high mountains. It, it had been able to remain culturally intact up and up until it was opened to tourism and travel in 1976. Yeah, so yeah, obviously Buddhism in the Ladakh is quite old. I mean, uh, I had read about uh, like the life of Buddha and one of the thing which I read about it, like the third Buddhist council was held in Kashmir that's about 400 BC like it's a long time back. And it seems like they've maintained that tradition. I mean, obviously in India, Buddhism is no longer a major religion, but it's there in those valleys and they've maintained that culture about for centuries. So uh, uh, I just, we just wanted to know like, uh, how was you, I mean, how did you get, for example, to live with them? 
or uh, how did you start, for example, interacting with them? Or uh, obviously, you travel from Srinagar to Zanskar, which by itself is a journey. I mean, I think you did some of the foot travel and then you crossed some of the snow mountains, then you reached the monastery and you had some old maps, which probably were not accurate. So can you just describe a little bit about how you found those monasteries and how did those people accept you into their daily lives? And uh, how did you acclimatize to their culture? Well, I had already been living in India and Nepal for about a year. So I spoke some Hindi, I spoke some Urdu, I spoke some Tibetan, and I started to learn some Zanskari as I walked through the valley. And people were very generous. You know, every couple of days I would meet people who were walking from village to village to do some trading or to visit families. It was the summertime, so that's a time when people are on the move a little bit more. And uh, the Zanskaris are also traders, so they travel a fair bit. Every few days I'd meet people and pretty much every day and a half I'd walk through a little village. And when I say little, sometimes it would be 10 or 15 houses, you know, just a small little village tucked in the foothills of these very high mountains. The floor of the valley is 3000 meters up and then the mountains go up from there. I think the highest pass I crossed was 5,100 meters, which is really high. And the people were just, you know, if they'd see people along the road, they'd say hello and we'd walk together and, and talk. And oftentimes I'd be invited into uh, their homes for the evening to spend to sleep uh, with the family in the evening and we'd eat together and talk together. And what I found was that they were just really gracious and generous and uh, it was like everyone had sort of an open home and it was also the times and it's partly their culture that they they like to show they like to give things away. They like to host. They like to welcome guests. And part of it has to do with an understanding that of karma that as we practice generosity uh, in, in the Buddhist teachings, you will gain merit. You'll be rewarded in the future. And so people as a rule, and you see this among the children too, they fight to give each other the better toy, you know, if they're playing Zanskari Jacks with, they, they fight to give each other the better rocks to play their, their Jacks with, or the better piece of food, or um, they're very, they really practice that sense of, of open-heartedness and non-attachment. And so when I was there, you know, oftentimes I would walk for many hours alone, you know, six, seven hours. And then sometimes I would meet people and I'd walk with them for a day or two. Uh, I met one other Westerner who I walked with for um, a little bit longer and we shared the path and, and that was nice to do for a while. And what I found was that the walking through the uh, unbelievably beautiful mountains, the scenery is just 
extraordinary. And I really tried to describe that in my book, Adventure in Zanskar, to really give readers a taste of the drama in the mountains. You have you walk a day through this monochrome landscape, which is just black rock, black mountains with white snow and a sea, you know, bed on the valley floor of just these round black rocks. And then two days later, you'd be walking through a part of the valley, which is like a painted desert where the mountains have stripes across them of gold and purple and even greenish rock. And you can see the the geographical history of millions of years of formation. And when you're in this rarefied environment, you're just walking through the challenges of your mind, you're walking through your own beliefs about yourself and what you're capable of or not capable of. And you have this stunning landscape around you your mind really starts to slow down and you also really start to see that a lot of what we experience, whether it's pleasure or pain, has to do more with our attachment to what we're thinking than what's really happening around us. So if I was feeling very discouraged or doubting my ability no doubt the climb up the next mountain pass would be really hard. And if I was feeling very optimistic and dedicated and moved by the opportunity to practice meditation in motion, walking up the next mountain pass, even if it was physically hard, mentally and emotionally was not nearly as hard. And that's really what you find when you're able to go to a place like Zanskar, or there are other places in India and Uttar Pradesh and Himachal Pradesh where you can walk in the mountains. And there are a lot of sacred pilgrimage places along the way. You feel that the physical challenge you're undergoing is a spiritual challenge. It's a moral challenge. It's a character challenge. And the goal is not just to climb a summit or walk 500 kilometers, it's to really transcend the attachment to thought and feeling and to be able to abide in equanimity and understand how life is constantly in motion and some moments are good and some moments are bad and you can remain steady behind it all. Uh, the Tibetans talk a lot, or the Zanskaris talk a lot about enlightenment being like with a mind that's like the clear light of bliss. And when you're up in the high mountains and you're very close to the sky and it's a perfectly clear day, the sky is so translucent. It's, it's kind of white, kind of clear, and you can feel how infinite the sky really is, how it extends in all directions. And it gives you a visceral experience of what the texts talk about, of, of what that clear mind that's unobstructed can feel like. And you can understand that how many of the meditation metaphors that are talked about in, in the Tibetan Buddhist literature and in their sutras and, and practices 
really come from the geography. And you can see how many of their metaphors, once you're up there, they fit so well that you get a, you get a different visceral sense of what the meditation instructions are pointing to. That's great. So uh, I had one question. So you described a lot about meditation and the tradition. So can you give some specific examples of, for example, what kind of meditation did they used to practice? Or was it like, like, did you visit lots of monasteries? Or I mean, how many monasteries did you visit in Zanskar? And I mean, uh, what specific uh, in the tradition was allowing them to survive in that kind of environment? Like, how was Buddhism helping by either some specific type of meditation or some specific tradition which helped them in surviving in that hostile valley for this long? Like, uh, can you give some specific examples of that? I, well, Tibetan Buddhism is rather complicated and there are many entry points and layers and levels. So in Zanskar, they also practice somewhat of a mix of the Bon religion, which is like a precursor to the Mahamudra teachings, which are many teachings on meditative emptiness uh, or the Dzogchen teachings, which are similar, which are really about understanding the, the um, nature of mind or consciousness. And when the practices of Tibetan Buddhism are often, there are also a lot of rituals that are quite complicated. So they may, I was at Ringdom Gompa when they were doing a special Torma Puja where they make ritualized offerings in specific shapes out of uh, this barley flour uh, dough and they paint them specific colors with and ornament them with, with, uh, with yak butter, dyed yak butter in specific shapes. And then they chant various texts in supplication to different deities and the different deities represent different aspects of illuminated mind. And the, the tantric meditations or the Vajra meditations can be very complex where monks or practitioners are meditating on various deities and there, there are detailed descriptions of what you will visualize and the different layers of the metaphoric palaces that these deities are within. All of those things are, are described as metaphors for illumined mind. So when you practice the visualizations in that way, you're cultivating uh, mental stamina, you're cultivating the ability to train your mind on these sacred objects and syllables, uh, both written and spoken syllables that uh, have specific meaning and also a vibrational quality to them, which similar to, you know, in, in some of the, the Hindu practices where you meditate on various, 
yantras or mantras and meditate on different syllables. So that's very similar, uh, you know, Buddhism and, and Hinduism, uh, especially the deeper meditative qualities, they, they have a lot of similarities. And what you're really doing, though, is you're cultivating different aspects of higher human virtues, whether it's compassion, clarity, non-detachment, equanimity, patience, um, sympathetic joy, love and kindness, wis discriminating wisdom. There are many different aspects and the different deities uh, represent different aspects. So that's one part of their practice. Another part of their practice is mantra accumulation. So they will choose a specific mantra for a, a particular deity. Uh, you know, one of the most common mantras is the mantra of Chinrezig, the uh, deity of compassion, Omani Pimihom. And they carve that mantra in stones and they have these large walls, they're called money walls, where they have mantras carved in stone and Buddhas carved in stone. And they believe that when the wind brushes over the mantra, it's carrying imprints of the mantra across the land. So they have many different markers and reminders of where you're supposed to put your attention. So you're never far from a reminder about what the human life is for. And the human life is really for the, uh, for awakening, for cultivating enlightened mind. And the Tibetans talk about the six different realms of existence. And they say that the human realm is the easiest one to practice in, because if you're in a God realm, you're too distracted by all the pleasure. So you don't pay attention to the Dharma. And if you're in the animal realm, those are the two closest realms to the human realm. If you're in the animal realm, they say you're too filled with sloth and torpor, with tamas. You're too um, slow or dull-minded to practice the Dharma. And although they do believe that some animals have um, are attracted to enlightened beings and may have more access to awakened consciousness, it gets a little complicated. But they say in the human realm, you don't have too much suffering and you have, don't have too much pleasure. So you're able to, to devote your attention to the practice of the Dharma, the practice of the higher way of being and of stilling the passions, the negative passions of desire and greed and lust and anger and fear and cultivate the qualities of awakened wisdom and compassion. So all of their practices are dedicated to that. I was there during one very long puja at Lingshet Monastery, a large monastery. I think it maybe had 60, 70, 100 monks at the time I was there. Um, and it's, it's nestled right on the side of a very, very steep, very, very high mountain, very difficult to get to. And they did a several day puja with lots of chanting and playing of the symbolic instruments, the long horns that they play in, the different types of drums and the conch shells. Uh, I, I didn't know what the puja was for. It was one of their annual large pujas. And then afterwards, all the villagers got together in this um, large field at the side of the cliff and did folk dances and sang and 
all night. And it was just such a beautiful time. You could see that the monastery holds the practice and the monks practice all the time, but they serve the whole village as a gathering place and as a place to really immerse for days at a time. And all ages are there from infants, you know, up to the oldest grandparent. And it's a, it's a powerful time of just immersion in prayer, mantra, listening to teachings from the lamas, which I didn't understand. I, there were no translators there. So that was above my level of, of knowledge. I could get along in very simple ways, but they would get teachings on ex, ex, explanations from lamas who meditated very deeply on what the texts really mean and what is, what is the symbolism and what is it for and how do you practice and everyone men and women would all be crammed together for days at a time absorbing and learning and practicing and then celebrating afterwards and you could feel that the beauty of everyone being included in that no one was left out you know, you didn't really choose, do I want to go to the puja or not? That was the only thing everybody did. And so everyone carries this understanding and knowledge in a way that creates a lot of shared understanding and harmony. And I know that it has changed quite a bit since, you know, once they built the road and more Western you know, ways of being that have to do more with material gain started coming into the valley. I think a lot of those traditions have been eroded and younger people have moved to cities and the impact hasn't been very positive overall. While it's, it's important to uplift and, and make life easier in these simpler places or bring solar power and bring cleaner water and, and ways to work, um, unfortunately, the change has come so quickly that I think in the last 40 years since I was there, a lot of the, the flow of life that passed from generation to generation has been somewhat interrupted. Yeah, so I think uh, one of the things which changes quite quickly, quickly is the materialistic society, like how people work or I mean, move out to work or, for example, how did they make, create families or something like that, which are more of out of spiritual domain, like more of like day-to-day -day needs. So when you were there in Zanskar, so how would you describe the society, like not in terms of the spiritual practices, but more in terms of like, how were they, I mean, I mean what were the division of the societies, the status of women in the society or uh, what did people used to do other than praying? Like, was there a division of labor or something like that in those places? So, uh, what did you observe in those in your years of stay there in the monasteries? Like, how would you describe these things uh, for people living in Zanskar? What I loved about Zanskar is the the women were very free, and uh, and they were very mixed with the men. Uh, and part of it is because the population is so small and life is so 
hard. There wasn't the same division of labor and there wasn't the same, there was no caste system as well. So it was very different than life in the mountains in Terry Garwal and Uttar Pradesh that I had seen where the women and men were in very different spheres and they didn't really interact very much. In Zanskar, the men and women interacted quite a bit and there was a lot of equality in the household. Either I saw men and women cooking, you know, they would pass, they would pass the babies back and forth. The men would have the babies on their back and take care of them and the women both men and women would be in the fields or they'd be building walls or both men and women would weave. And so I really saw uh, there was a lot of um, ease of communication between men and women in a way that was, and the women were very free. They were very uh, strong and confident and at ease with themselves. And you didn't, you didn't feel that one or the other carried a, a bigger burden. You know, they both really shared things equally. At the time also, uh, a woman could be married to up to four men. And oftentimes she would marry a husband's brother. That, that was really very practical because as I mentioned, Zanskaris are traders. And in the long winter months, uh, Zanskaris would take their horses and they would go up the frozen rivers and they would go as far as Turkey. So they would be gone for months at a time. And so it was very good for there to be more than one male in a household, uh, you know, to help with the work for protection, for wild animals, for, you know, should you know, they're bandits and anywhere, but, you know, so, so you would see that I met some families where brothers would tell me that they were both married to the same woman, and I never felt any conflict. It was, they, they seemed to have a way of ease about what works, what worked in that very isolated land. The monasteries are you know, nuns and monks are separate. So there were nunneries and there were monasteries. I never went to a nunnery. I only went to monasteries. And in the monasteries, the, even though it said that women could become enlightened, the nunneries are, they're not as supported as well. The, the nuns have just less to eat, less uh, support with their studies. Yeah, you know, the, the nunneries were, were really second class to the monasteries. The monasteries were very highly regarded and that's where the great teachers were. There, were, there are many stories of profoundly enlightened uh, long-term women meditators and nuns and, and women who would go into caves and do very esoteric practices for decades. So, it, while they have those stories, I never had the opportunity to meet those women because they're very in very remote places and I didn't have a translator. So it wouldn't have, wouldn't have made much sense to go visit. But in general, the monasteries are, are much better endowed than the, than the nunneries. But the quality of life is between the genders was, was really refreshing. Being a woman alone, I felt 
like I was much less of an anomaly than when I was in places in in more southern states of India that were a little more traditional. During those times, I, I was a little bit like a Martian, <laughs> being a woman on my own, and and in, inevitably I would, you know, people would always ask me, "Where is your husband?" And you know, why wasn't I with a, a protector? And so that was very different. I never got asked that in Zanskar. Uh, they were used to women holding their own. And I liked that. And it might be part because in the Buddha's time, that was one of the things he did. He did allow women to ordain. And he was, he believed that there was a lot of inequality in the Buddhist time, but compared to the culture at large, he created a lot of opportunities for women to study and practice and express their realization. And that was a huge change. And also within Buddhism, he didn't acknowledge any caste difference. And so he was really a reformer in that way. And because Zanskar is the oldest Buddhist, continuously Buddhist valley in the world, as you said, Buddhism went up there, you know, a few centuries after the Buddha. And that I'm sure influenced the way of life there, not just the, the, the remoteness and the need for everyone to participate, but I'm sure that that quality of, we all have karma, we all can realize enlightenment, we all have Buddha nature. And therefore, if we practice and are diligent and sincere, and make effort, we can progress on the path, whether we're men or women, it, that, that's an outer sheath that is irrelevant to the true nature. And that I believe was very much a part of why there was so much harmony between the men and women and so much freedom. Yeah, I think that's a lot of insight. So uh, I guess I would just like to move to a little bit related topic, like you are living in US, so, and there are tourists, obviously people from US who want to travel to example, these places. And uh, one of the questions they will obviously ask is, what are the facilities for tourism there or how can we survive there? Like you, I mean, those places can get as cold as possible. So uh, what would you tell them like people from US or Western nations who want to travel to these places or even India, like people not living in these places. So what will you advise to them? Like how should they travel or what should they expect or how can they survive in this maybe without room eating or anything like uh, modern technologies to support living in these cold climate. So how about those tourists uh, uh, can go on, do something similar what we have done 40 years back. I don't know that they could do what I've done because I think life has changed so much with the internet and with cell phones and GPS and roads. So I think it'll be somewhat different. And I would recommend uh, that everyone, I think at this point, really to go with a, a local guide who can really protect the culture and the environment because these places are very delicate. The 
ecology is very delicate, the culture is very delicate. And there are um, ecotourist guides that can help educate tourists so that they have the best experience and they can um, understand the richness of the valley while not leaving a heavy footprint. And as, as the valley has opened up and more and more people are able to go, the impact is much greater. So I think that it's even more important now than when I was there to go with somebody who really has sensitivity to that and who supports the local ecology and economy and has respect for the culture and its ways. So to do, um, to be able to benefit from being in such a beautiful place and with such loving people while also um, protecting the natural environment and the cultural environment. So I think that if travelers go with a sense of respect and care and recognition of the fragility of a, a place like Zanskar and they, they go with the intention to preserve it and then they work with uh, good guides, then I think that that will be the best way to go. I would, I would also encourage people to, I think the best word is to be humble because if, if you go in a, in a softer way, you're able to appreciate the nuance of the culture than if you try to recreate your comfort of the West. So be prepared to be a little bit uncomfortable, go with somebody who is very sensitive to the environmental uh, care of the region and the cultural care of the region, respect the religion and respect the people. And you'll just come you know, you're likely to come away as transformed and uplifted as I was. My time there impacted me so much that 40 years later, I had to write a book about the time. And when I went to write the book, uh, my, it was as if I was there again, the, the love and the ease and the joy that I experienced there was present with me as I was writing Adventure in Zanskar. So I hope that you read the book and that that will, you know, for tourists and travelers who want to go and that'll give you a sense of what's happening behind the scenes about the Buddhist principles, about the natural landscape and some about the history. So, you know, a little bit more uh, when you go visit. Yeah, so you have already released your book. So can you a little bit tell like, how are the reviews are getting for your book or what you have found most useful from the readers of your book as maybe uh, the had, feedback of I've had people in their 20s tell me how much they appreciated it it gave them understanding of the path and how to work with your own mind I've had people in their 70s tell me that it reminded them of spiritual journeys that they took and they had really forgotten about and they felt that calling and that freshness again. So it's really touched all ages. 
it's just been nominated for a Publishers Weekly Ben Franklin Book Award. Uh, the finalists will, so it's one of the top three, the finalists will be announced in April. So I'm, I'm quite excited about that. And it's, it's gotten very nice reviews. It really is a book, whether you are a traveler or not, it's a book that can touch pretty much everyone because you have a, a travel log, you have a, a view into another culture, you have an understanding of Buddhist principles in the way that they're applied. You have a story of culture clash with you know how the West meets you know a culture from the East that's been pretty much unchanged for hundreds, if not thousands of years what that's like, what the issues are. So there are a lot of different attractions to the book. And of course, for young women or older women, the, the possibility of having, you know, going on an adventure through another woman's eyes is always very exciting, but it wasn't written specifically for women, but I know that that, that sense of empowerment uh, can, can be very inspiring. Yeah, that's great to know. And apart from the memories, did you also get some actual souvenirs from the place? <laughs> Are there uh, in paintings or something like monastery decorations or something like that? Um, I didn't take, I took only photographs uh, when I was there. And you have to remember when you're traveling with a backpack, there's not too much you want to carry. But over the decades since, I've been able to um, find some beautiful uh, Tibetan art to, you know, for my own meditation space. And again, you know, I, I encourage people to value what's indigenous to Zanskar and, and to you know, respect the, the religious items as religious items. Uh, so if you, if you do come away with water bowls or um, prayer wheels or malas, that you respect their origin because they signify, you know, they're, they're markers of our a path to higher culture to our higher cultivation and so they have a meaning to them and so i encourage people to when you bring them to your home have them hold that place in your home so if you bring water bowls to your home have them have them in a place that reminds you of what's sacred rather than just using them as just an ordinary kitchen object or something like that Yeah, I think that holds true for any culture, whether you go to any part of the world, you should respect what you're getting from there in terms of what they actually stand for. I think that I think you had a very great experience there and you carried lots of values from that place into your life and been also teaching them to high school students and obviously you have been quite successful at it. So maybe some parting thoughts on on this whole journey, which we had, mm -hmm. it's about a lot, lot of years now. So what have you learned and what do you want to carry forward in the future with this? 
and maybe something about your next book or whatever you're planning to do next after this great book launch on the Zanskar Adventures. Thank you. Well, as you mentioned, I established a nonprofit called Inner Strength Education, which brings the principles of mindfulness, meditation, compassion to high school students in the US. Um, there's a manual and a textbook uh, called The Conscious Classroom, which are available. And Inner Strength Education has worked with 17,000 high school students over the last eight years. So it's a program. I've really been tried to translate the beauty that I experienced and was privileged to be touched by, to share that in my own way, in a culturally appropriate way in the city that I live in now. And I encourage people uh, who are listening to, to do the same, to uh, uh, whatever you're touched by in your travels, to share that in ways that are culturally appropriate because not everyone has the opportunity and we can benefit so much from some of those things that move us and change us as people. I guess my parting thoughts for all your listeners and readers is to cherish the beauty and diversity of our world and to love different cultures and traditions on their own terms for what they are and, and to respect them because we're living in a time where the internet is creating a lot of opportunity to connect. It's also creating somewhat of a monoculture around the world. And as I said, I, India is, is so beautiful and rich and so diverse. There's so many different cultures and languages and traditions and wisdom and dress and handicrafts and art. So it, 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 I spent you know, four years there and I feel like I hardly got to know uh, the, the North at all, you know, there's, and just, so I encourage, especially your listeners from India to just cherish and love all the di beautiful diversity and what it points to in your culture and for travelers all around the world to value the opportunity to meet people who are different and learn from them. And that makes us feel close. It makes us feel um, that humanity is, we all have our shared loves and desires and creativity that it can, can express in so many different ways. And there is beauty in the diversity. Yeah, I think it's a great noble thought. And I think with that, we're coming to the end towards podcast. And I think it's been a great episode in which we have talked with Emmy, who although came from US, but got immersed in Zanskar for about four years, traveled to remote part of this beautiful valley, and then went back to US and carried forward what her memories are into a very successful program for training young minds to become enlightened and have higher thoughts. And we encourage all our listeners to order a book on adventures in Zanskar, which is available in Amazon and other bookstores as well. And read through it and get to know like what a real travel and immersive travel looks like 
in a remote part of India, in Himalayas, and how to mingle with locals, how to live with them, and how to enjoy tourism at its best. So with it, uh, we'd like to thank Amy for her time and coming and agreeing to come on our podcast and speak about her invaluable experiences. Great, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here.